Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome once again to We Got Planning News For You. Um, thank you all very much indeed for joining us this week. Um, the usual reminder to start off with, please do consider to make a charity donation in lieu of a registration fee, either to Shelter or the NHS Clap for Kira's uh, combined Just Giving page, two charities we support, or indeed to a local charity of your choice. Welcome, as usual, to our YouTube viewers in the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel to get all our updates at the earliest opportunity. Um, now, um, our discussion topic this week is custom and self-built housing, uh, increasingly the subject of uh, planning applications and debate at planning appeals and local plan examinations. Mary and I have had such a debate at a, a local plan examination not that long ago. Um, and we're very lucky to be joined for this by um, Richard Bacon, MP, um, our first elected member of parliament uh, on this show. Richard, thank you very much indeed um, for joining us. Um, Richard, um, as you will all know, uh, sponsored the, if that's the right word in parliamentary terms, sponsored the Self-Build and Custom House Building Act 2015, which now provides a legislative teeth um, for the promotion of this kind of, and delivery of this kind of housing. Uh, and you set up as well the all-parliamentary group on the subject. I think it's fair to describe you as we have, as the, the champion of self and custom build in this country. Mm. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you uh, for that. Richard, can you tell us um, where you're calling from and, and what have you chosen as this week's theme? And Okay, well, can you hear me clearly? We can, loud and clear. Good, excellent. Um, my, uh, I, I'm uh, in a converted potting shed in South Norfolk. Um, I sold my house recently and uh, I'm renting this one. It's very nice uh, mm. from a local farmer who converted a shed into uh, a home. But I actually, of course, want at some point, if I can, to build my own house. Um, the theme I've chosen, um, I understand, first of all, that you always have a beer, um, but the theme is Norfolk and Suffolk. I, I uh, am a uh, uh, resident of Norfolk and have been the MP here for 19 years in South Norfolk. My wife's from Suffolk, and I felt uh, since our continuing discussion about whether Norfolk is God's own county or Suffolk is, doesn't seem, in, in, uh, in, um, in, doesn't seem likely to be uh, finished anytime soon, it's probably best to have a, a joint theme so my beer is Ghost Ship, Adnam's Ghost Ship, ah, uh, from Suffolk, just over the border. Um, uh, a very, very good beer indeed. It's a, it's a hoppy, uh, multi-citrusy uh, pale ale. Very good indeed. And um, my tie, which I hope you can see, yes, can. Um, is the tie of the Anglia Farmers, uh, a very successful Norfolk-based agricultural buying cooperative. Um, I'll get a bit closer to the yes. tie so you can see it's full glory. I'll have you know, this did once feature in Huffington Post um, uh, <laughs> above a caption that said, Bacon's superb tie. And it was a narrative comparing it very unfavorably with the ties of David Cameron and uh, I think at the time it was Ed Miliband. I sat next to David Cameron once at a dinner and he picked up my tie and started stroking it uh, while I was still wearing it and said uh, rather wistfully, I I'm not allowed to wear ties like that, but I am and I do. Um, the other part of my theme is a classical education um, because, and I hope you can see this, um, I've, got, um, I've got here uh, a pile of um, penguin paperbacks. Um, uh, when I lost three stone, I'm, I'm losing a lot more weight hopefully, but when I went through the three stone barrier, I decided to uh, reward myself with a job lot of penguin classics. And um, I've got all the normal classics you'd expect. I've got Herodotus, uh, Thucydides, Tacitus, Plato, Aristotle, and uh, Seneca made the cut here. Awesome. Uh, Seneca, um, who I'm very interested in, the first time I stood for Parliament, I fought the seat of Vauxhall in South London against uh, Kate Hoey, a very, very nice lady who's now in the House of Lords. I think it's fair to say that um, Vauxhall fought back, but I did print a quote 
from Seneca in my election newspaper, uh, which has been a, a, a fond quote of mine for many, many years. And it's this, if you don't know which port you are sailing for, no wind is favorable. But of course, the corollary is also true that if you know exactly where you're heading, then even unfavorable circumstances and unfavorable winds can be used uh, to your advantage. And of course, something that sailors have to do every day when navigating the high seas. And I thought that that was an interesting theme for tonight because it's possible it may come up a little later as well. Absolutely. Well, Richard, thank you so much indeed. We're really looking forward to having our chat with you in the second half of the show. Um, as viewers will know, and as indeed you know, um, uh, we, we have the first half, we're going to do some uh, case updates. Um, you're very welcome to, um, uh, to join in on that. But equally, no obligation. You're very welcome equally to stay on screen and sip your ghost ship. I say that, pronounce that very carefully because I uh, I had ghost ship early, on an earlier episode and um, didn't pronounce it very audibly. And Chris's son thought I said something rather rude to do with things <laughs> like ghosts. Um, anyway, um, against that background, let's introduce the panel. Uh, Mary, while you're telling us um, where you are, I'm going to go and turn my lights on because I've dimmed my light as I'm back at home in quarantine. And I suspect you can hardly see me, which is probably no bad thing. So I can see that. I can see that blonde head of hair <laughs> looming large don't you worry charlie um so good evening everybody mary cook from town legal i'm in the office and i'm 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 afraid to say that i'm just drinking water Leave but me. um can i just say richard that your introduction there has taken me back to tacitus who whom i studied when i was doing latin a level wow Agricola was the name of the piece that I studied in, in some depth. Um, but anyway, very nice to have you on the show. And I look forward Thank to Thank you very much. Later. It's the second, the second episode running. The Synodies has been named Trek too, as it happens. Uh, Paul, how are you doing? You've been an inquiry this week. I have, and not in the back of the car. Um, so <laughs> yes. I'm stable. I'm, I did think about sitting in the back of the car and asking my wife to drive around the block just to give you all the answer. Uh, yes, I'm still in Lancashire, uh, doing an inquiry in South London, so in that surreal world that we live in. Uh, I'm afraid I went to Raincliffe Comprehensive School in Scarborough and therefore didn't have a classical education. But I have got this from, uh, from Norfolk, that's our beloved Delia, uh, which I'll be opening in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, from Norfolk as well, when I went on a rugby tour to Bungie when I was 18, uh, for some reason I bought this thing, which is meant to be a woolly rhinoceros vertebra dredged from Doggerland uh, by some local fishermen. It's probably made of resin, and I probably paid 20 quid when I was 19 and absolutely got scammed by one of uh, your fellow countrymen, Richard. So there we are. And as for beer, I couldn't find Norfolk beer in Waitrose in, in uh, Lancashire for some strange reason. Scandal. Uh, exactly. But I found two from Suffolk. So I've got the choice of Old Gold Hen, not a turkey, but Old Gold Hen, and Icebreaker Pale Ale. And because winter is coming, I'm going to go for this one. Cheers. Cheers, Paul. Um, Chris, you're in the number five starship, I can see. Uh, yeah, I'm in uh, Birmingham Chambers. I've been in the Central Beds local plan examination, uh, doing one of my favourite things, which is promoting a new settlement through a local plan. Um, incidentally, Charlie, last week you mentioned a, a recent successful challenge to the Harrogate local plan. Do you remember that? Yes, indeed. So. On a procedural issue over strategic environmental assessment for a new settlement. Well, the council wasted no time because it was a procedural complaint. They reconsidered the matter last night, readopted the plan and a new settlement for up to 4,000 new homes uh, now stands in that plan. And um, I have to say Harrogate's masterstroke, I think, because this has been a theme across the show, is they did it as a broad location. Um, and, um, and so that is part of an adopted local plan. I know Paul's done that as well. Um, and so, guys, all going on before Christmas, isn't it? It's the South Oxfordshire Committee, uh, full yeah. committee tonight. We've all got skin in that game. Um, and I have been to a shop in Cheltenham and got a drink from Norfolk because uh, that is Nelson's. And I was successful in the task pool. <laughs> Sasha, how, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I've, I've, I've had a unique week of closing two different inquiries this week, so I don't know what, what day it is, where I am, or who I am. <laughs> um, but no, I wanted to, uh, I'm in London. I've got a great Norfolk wine, St. Aubin. It's probably not the right pronunciation, but that was the best I could do, I'm afraid. And I want to say to Richard, I lost, and you need to concentrate very much on my words, I lost my advocacy virginity in Norfolk. Norwich in 1992, where I did my first ever cross examination. 
in Norwich, in, uh, Norfolk County Council. And it obviously went okay because I was offered tenancy soon after. But I do remember my opponent, who will remain nameless, interrupted me within 30 seconds of me getting to my feet. Eminent QC. Mm. And, and shocking, we, shocking behaviour, none of which yeah. you repeat, I hope. None of us would do that, would we? Rob to, uh, to dub out the word advocacy in the YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Banner here, um, Keating Chambers, uh, and I'm in quarantine. Uh, you reap what you sow. If you can't do the time, uh, can't, don't do the crime, etc., etc. Thankfully, my time in Dubai offsets it, so I'm liberated on Saturday. Um, and because of that... Yet again, I've not been able to uh, perform the, the, the task. We had, had to find safari in Scandinavia. Was it cultural heritage in Dubai? And now Norfolk beer when I can't leave my own home. Cathy uh, Allen, my wife, was very kind enough to give me this humongous um, at beer advent calendar. So I've been raiding pretty much every date of that, hoping that there might be a Norfolk uh, beer in there. But no, there wasn't. So I chose the one with the funniest name, Evil Santa. It's Ooh. a... Spiced milk stout. I have a feeling it may be a contender for the most disgusting beer drunk on this show, which is a uh, uh, no um, no tall order, to say the least, given some of the stuff that's been drunk. But I should let you know how I get to get on. I've got um, 10, 23 others in box if needed. Um, now, uh, on to the serious stuff. And I'm kicking off um, uh, today. Uh, we actually got, I think, I might say, four appeal decisions because um, the first time in this show, um, there hasn't actually been a planning high court case of investing last week. The first case um, related to a decision, a planning appeal decision for a proposed 400 dwelling uh, development uh, promoted by Manor Oak Homes on an unallocated green field site in, in Bedford um, Borough, in a place called uh, South End. Um, there were a wide range of objections put forward, um, some by the local authority, some by residents, some by both local authority retreated from Sun. Um, they included conflict with spatial strategy, impact on character and appearance of the area, archaeology, best and most versatile agricultural land, highway safety, sustainability of the location, impact on local infrastructure. Now, save in relation to spatial strategy, the appellant persuaded the inspector that there are either no or no unacceptable impacts in relation to any of that litany of issues, doubtless due to the expert cross-examination and persuasion skills of his advocate, somebody called Paul Tucker. Have you heard of him? Um, anyway, uh, as for the spatial strategy, um, this was set out in the recently adopted um, January 2020 Bedford Borough Local Plan, uh, and the parties agreed that the development was in, would be in breach of that uh, uh, strategy as enshrined in what was policy 7S of the local plan, because the site was located outside of Bedford's court and north of the town, unrelated to any defined key or rural service centre, so it was agreed to be in breach of that policy. However, the inspector thought that was really a, um, a breach without any real on the ground consequence. He thought that actually the uh, the site was it was adjacent to the settlement policy of South End. It was within walking distance of various facilities, public transport, local facilities, uh, education. It would deliver education provision to that settlement that didn't have plus open space. Um, it had been put forward as a, uh, a draft allocation. It was removed, but the inspector said it was on balance. And um, the inspector said it was not unreasonable for the appellant's advocate to imply that it's a matter of when, not if the site is to be developed. And therefore, he said uh, that the breach of that, that particular policy or settlement strategy would be small, largely limited to undermining of confidence in the plan-led system. So a sort of political PR harm rather than a uh, on-the-ground harm. Um, that turned out to be the only development plan conflict identified by the inspector. Um, there was then a debate about five-year supply resolved in favour of the council. Um, this turned on uh, the requirement figure, uh, and, and the issue was whether um, the council's, um, I don't like the word overperformance, but the exceedance of its requirements in, in uh, recent years should be spread over the whole plan period, as had been done in the recent local plan examination, or whether it should all be offset against the immediate five-year supply. And if, if the latter, then they had a five-year supply. If, if the former, they didn't. Um, and the inspector's essential logic, it seems to me to be fair to say, was that the reason why the local plan inspectors didn't um, uh, set it off against the first five years is they didn't need to in order for there to be a five-year supply at the time. But now the council did need to. They could um, effectively call in that overperformance um, so that they could have a five-year supply. Um, 
to my mind, that's what one might describe as somewhat generous to the local authority. Um, but um, there we are. Um, having found uh, that the tilted balance under the framework didn't apply under either housing supply or other grounds, the inspector dismissed the appeal on the basis that the material considerations, including the benefits of the scheme, didn't outweigh the conflict with the spatial strategy policy. Um, he thought there was no compelling reason to deliver the benefits of the site of the development now. Um, it seems what called it for the inspector was this was just too big a scheme too soon after the local plan was adopted. Uh, I must say on reading and rereading it decision, I was reminded of the mortal words of the, the House of Laws judgment, City Edinburgh case in 1996, that Section 38.6 doesn't require slavish adherence to a development plan, and where um, development has no or no unacceptable impacts and lots of benefits, and the only development harm is technical in nature with no real on the ground consequence. To my mind, that's a paradigm situation of where applying City of Edinburgh material considerations can indicate otherwise in accordance with the plan, no matter how new the plan is, um, because there's no harm uh, and there's lots of good and the net effect is good. So why stop it? Um, that's anyway, that's my uh, reading of it. Uh, despite this, uh, I mean, I, I said to Paul yesterday, uh, describing this case so close, but no cigar, given how much you cut down. But I rather suspect Paul's clients will be pretty pleased with the result because there's a local plan review coming um, rapidly down the tracks, uh, or an early review. And it seems to me that the clean bill of health, this site scheme has been given by inspector, is likely to be a ticket to an allocation in that plan review. And that is, of course, complete without prejudice for me accepting any briefs to four opponents of that site at that local plan review. <laughs> anyway, that's the Bedford case. And the next one is, well, over to you, Paul. You're going to tell us about um, Finchingford. Yeah, if, if it's not bad enough to listen to you telling me about the, the case that I lost, where I won everything apart from the result, I've now got to describe a case that somebody else won uh, in Braintree. So at least it's an East Anglian case, consistent with the theme. So my, my appeal was one uh, allowed on 25th of November for 50 dwellings, uh, outline consent on the edge of a relatively small uh, 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 settlement in Braintree. Uh, it's one where there were a number of peripheral issues, but as between the council and the uh, appellant, it was agreed that there wasn't a five-year land supply. Now, that's not surprising in Braintree for anybody that keeps up with current events and has watched previous editions of the show, because obviously there have been problems in terms of delivery of uh, housing in uh, North Essex, uh, haven't there, Charlie? Um, so, that, uh, uh, so that there was no five-year land supply. It was an ordinary parcel of land described as such by Mr. Inspector Rose on the edge of the settlement. There was some harm because of the morphology of the settlement, which I understand from a person who hasn't had a classical education means shape. Uh, 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 so there's issues with morphology, but it's an ordinary parcel of land. Tilted balance is engaged, and the inspector uh, at paragraph 97 uh, of the, the decision reads out, uh, it's effectively a, a rallying cry. It's a good old-fashioned MPPF-type uh, appeal decision. And this is going in my closings for future uh, cases of this nature. The current impasse regarding the council's future strategy for meeting its affordable and other housing needs and its persisting absence of a five-year supply may indeed yet prove temporary and short-term. The residual harm that this proposal will cause landscape character and visual amenity will be permanent. Nevertheless, the council's housing needs continue unaddressed Clear prospects of five-year delivery are still unknown and people requiring homes remain unaccommodated by, by the planning system, contrary to national expectations. The inspector was Peter Rose. This is one of the best written appeal decisions I've read for an awfully long time. And if you want to know how to write an appeal decision, irrespective of the result, this is it. So I commend it to everybody to read. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Paul. Bravo to Peter Rose. Um, Sasha, you're going to tell us about an appeal from Haynes. I am, but before I do, I just I forgot to say at the beginning, I've got to just note tonight is a very historic night because Arsenal playing their first ever match in the Republic of Ireland. And I know Paul's wife would be very keen to they lose. The other thing I wanted to say about my secret to being a parent is two of my three children did Latin and Greek A-levels and I didn't spend one minute of my education studying them, so I couldn't help with any homework. <laughs> all those years um i've got an appeal case in haynes now i know paul and chris paul always moans that his appeals don't actually say much and generally involve waste chris always moans that they're far too long and far too tedious to get on top of but i'm going to moan about mine because i quite frankly worry about how much i'd had to drink on friday night because my appeal has almost nothing in it which i've chosen for myself but it actually <laughs> at one point 
It's got one point, and that is paragraph 103. And we've all spent para 103 of the MPPF, and Richard will be particularly interested in this in his constituency. The, the interesting policy requirement is that opportunities to maximise sustainable transport solutions will vary between urban and rural areas, and this should be taken into account in both plan making and decision making. Now, I'm common sense. To, common sense. I'm yeah. going to yeah, let everyone in for a secret. It has not got. It's the most ill-defined, vague piece of subjective nonsense in planning policy. And we've all argued. I've argued. Chris has argued. I'm sure. Paul's argued. You've got a bus coming once every leap year. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right in this location when you consider its characteristics that bus will be a critical element of the transport provision of this site and it unquestionably unquestionably maximizes sustainable transport opportunities now in this appeal the inspector unfortunately didn't buy the mastery of the advocacy on display at that inquiry and it took the view that basically the site had no pavement very little bus and certainly no rail. And in consequence, it simply didn't comply with 103. And it's a good example if you do promote housing in the middle of nowhere, whether it be urban, rural or on the moon, you're going to run the risk of facing a problem with 103. And that's <laughs> brilliant. Of that that's probably something to some morphology, isn't it? To coin a phrase. Um, <laughs> Uh, thanks, Sasha. And if you're wondering, yes, it, it has been rather a fallow week in terms of decisions this week. Uh, what I can say is uh, I suspect we'll be back to business next week. I can reveal now that because it is on the Supreme Court's website, the Heathrow judgment is coming out next Wednesday. We'll obviously cover that next week. And I suspect he's <laughs> to get it in. Uh, we might not. I think there's another Haynes appeal decision, Charlie. It might take no, this, this yeah. is a, a house extension one you can cover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're proposing to change your loo seat this week, aren't you, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> hey, tell us, um, tell us uh, about the uh, the final <laughs> the final case we're covering. This well, week. now I would like to take you to Jaggard Way. Rob, can you can you put can you put a picture up, please? So this ah, is the site okay. of this is one of a number of units right by Wandsworth Common Railway Station. So this is my local railway station, just on the right-hand side there. That is the gym that my super fit daughters use. Um, and this is an appeal decision from Inspector Felgate, dated the 3rd of December. And it's a written rep appeal. And intriguingly, the applicant was none other than Cheshire West and Chester Council, who obviously own that wow. industrial little industrial estate by the um, the railway, but it's a sad. It's, it's a, I'm afraid to say it's a sad story for the investors of Ches Cheshire West and Chester Council because they made the application in November 2018. They got refused a year later in November 2019, and then they got refused in their written rep appeal uh, 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 only a, a few days ago. So uh, several years have been spent on this project with, with not much to show for it. It was a mixed use scheme for 72 units. Rob, can you show us the elevation, please? Now, look at that beauty thing of, thing of, thing of glory. Uh, and as you will see, there are four blocks uh, with these single story links between the first three and the fourth was a freestanding uh, one that's on the left hand side at the top that glorious fourth block and the idea was that um, this was going to be some employment largely b1c a bit of ba a bit of d2 uh, and residential and on the left hand side of that picture i showed you before on the other side from the railway station are residential properties and Further up the site, as it were, there were a number of these re of, of houses with quite short rear gardens, and herein lay the, the issue. Um, the scheme was devised so as to ensure there was no net loss of employment, slightly less than the policy compliant affordable housing provision was made, but the op planning officers 
who recommended that permission should be granted, recommended that a review mechanism could deal with that issue. So, as I say, officer recommendation to grant, but members rejected that advice because of the impact of that block, in, the last block uh, in particular, on the living conditions of some properties in Ravensley Road, number 65 to 77 Ravensley Road. There was a development plan policy, DMS1C, which seeks to ensure that new development avoid causing harm to the amenity of neighbouring occupiers uh, in terms of a range of impacts, overshadowing, overbearing, unsatisfactory outlook, privacy, and that good old chestnut, sunlight and daylight. The inspector found that there were breaches of the BRE, both in terms of the vertical sky component, so that's VSC, that's the daylight coming in uh, on the face of the window, and the ADF, that's the average daylight factor, that's the light in the room. And these uh, breaches related to rooms at the rear, and those rooms at the rear were kitchen, kitchen mm. uh, diners, living rooms, so they were principal living rooms, and also upper floor bedrooms. And we're talking about um, VSC going from 31.31%, let's just keep it simple, 31% to 19%. These were quite significant losses, well above, the inspector said, the 27% mm. threshold. So it was a combination of windows and the room that those windows lit, both of those uh, uh, tests in the BRE failed and they both failed to quite a significant degree and the inspector found that these losses would be unacceptable to the detrimental um, sorry unacceptably detrimental to the living conditions of the residents I mean he acknowledged that the BRE uh, suggests that some flexibility needs to be applied but he said that the policy the development plan policy required him to exercise his planning judgment and in his planning judgment the effects would be unacceptable. The local residents also raised another point which the council had not raised which was the effect on the character uh, and appearance of the conservation area. Now this uh, site did not lie in the conservation area it lay adjacent to it so it was a setting on the conservation area issue and the station which by the way is a single story red brick building um, is locally listed and the inspector and this is not a point raised by the council but the inspector also agreed with the residents and considered that there would be um, harm a harmful impact on the setting of the conservation area and the locally listed station. Um, so although he found that there was no issue in terms of the uh, loss of employment because there would be no net loss, he found clearly a breach of policy on with regard to daylight and sunlight, uh, clearly harm to the setting of the conservation area, and he was not in, sufficiently impressed by the addition of 72 units to suggest that uh, that warranted uh, granting the permission, and it was dismissed. Thank Thanks. you. Um, I mean, in a sense, uh, the BRE guidance or some of the application, a bit like paragraph 103, you can kind of make them mean what you want them to mean. <laughs> there's, um, there's a quite, the uh, uh, quite wide. I uh, think, I think, sorry to interrupt, Charlie, but I think this goes to show in suburban, uh, more suburban parts of outer London, it's actually going to be really difficult to achieve these higher densities on sites that actually the London plan oh. um, is looking to achieve. And uh, by the way, is that, a, is that a segue to say, have you all spotted today's announcement that the mayor has told the Secretary of State, if in effect, yeah. I'm fed up with waiting for you. I am in going to uh, adopt the plan um, on the 21st of December. So happy Christmas, Secretary of State. <laughs> yes, I did notice that, Mary, actually, with a, um, a two-week appeal starting next week in a suburban location in London with a high-rise development near a station. And uh, I have to say, looking at that building, thank you for including the uh, the drawings. That that was not designed by Ian Ritchie, was it? By the no, no, no. Obviously, self-evidently, <laughs> self-evidently. And, uh, of, of course, the quality of the, the, the design is, is an issue. But I... Uh, I have to tell you today, I got a disappointing decision in Richmond, which we'll probably be discussing next week, which again, just which just uh, emphasizes the difficulty 
of denser development, particularly in or, uh, or adjacent to conservation areas. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Thank you. Just slightly unfairly, Justin Paul has said it's um, it's perhaps nice to see Chester and West being on the receiving end of a refusal for once. <laughs> um, but no comment there. Mark Mark Allwood saying, um, would it pass the beauty test? Sure no, no, I don't think so. And just just to be clear on that, because I'm halfway through at suburban London high rise development close to the station as well. We're coming to the end of week one. Um, the Secretary of State's got six weeks to respond to that. So don't expect yes. that I'm being adopted anytime soon. No. I, well, Paul's inquiry, I was watching the end of an EIP, that I think effective closing remarks on YouTube, and it came up as my suggested viewing, Paul Tucker, on YouTube, and I watched a bit. Unfortunately, I couldn't read comments. Anyway, <laughs> over to Chris. Chris, you're going to lead uh, our interview with Richard, so on South and Castleville. So over I to am. you. I am. Thank you very much, Charlie. So, Richard, if I could just introduce you properly to, uh, to uh, everybody. Um, you are the Member of Parliament for South Norfolk, uh, have been since 2001, right to build ambassador, as Charlie has said. Uh, lots of proper jobs, I'm glad to see. You've been working in banking, financial journalism, public relations. You set up your own company. And uh, I did a little bit of digging. Um, in 2006, you were named Backbencher of the Year by your fellow MPs, which was uh, some um, some indication of uh, how well you're respected. And in November of the same year, you won three awards, Parliamentarian of the Year from Spectator magazine, Politician of the Year from the Political Studies Association, and Outstanding Parliamentarian of the Year from the Conservative Home website. It's probably easier that last one to win. Um, you rarely rebel against the government, but you have consistently rebelled in votes on military action in the Middle East. Um, and you were one of 15 MPs to vote against the evasion of Iraq, which obviously is uh, interesting to many people. You said, I don't believe war is uh, wrong. I, if I had, I wouldn't have joined the territorial army, but you have voted consistently about that. So you're not afraid to speak your mind within the party. And um, your very critical um, book, Conundrum, about the failings of the UK public sector projects like the National Health Service IT programme and the Child Support Agency. So you've been outspoken, although a loyal supporter of the government on many occasions. My first question, Richard, um, is how did you get interested in this topic, the issue of custom build and um, self-build housing? Well, like Nick Boyce-Smith, whom I saw on your programme recently, um, I've always been interested in the built environment. When I was an undergraduate in London, I attended the London School of Economics. Um, I used to see derelict houses in London. That used to make me very cross as a young man. Um, I also spent a lot of time living abroad. Uh, between the age of 14 and 20, I spent two and a half years in Canada. I also have lived in Berlin, uh, and my father lived in Sweden. And I've noticed that in different parts of the world, often housing is done differently and better. So when I got the chance through a private member's bill ballot to introduce a piece of legislation which had a reasonable chance of getting into law, this is the subject I chose. And, and in terms of that private members bill, um, not the easiest thing to get that actually to land on the statute book. How did you do it? Well, the first thing I did was make a beeline for the shadow housing minister, Emma Reynolds at the time, because I wanted the opposition to support it rather than oppose it. And to my great delight, I found that her father had built the house they lived in. And uh, she was a huge supporter. I got the opposition on side. Um, I also made sure that the person taking it through the House of Lords, once I got past the common stage, wasn't a Conservative. I found Richard Best, who's an independent peer, uh, and I could have almost gone up and hugged him, except you're not allowed to walk past the Bar of House uh, if you're a member of the Commons. Uh, when I heard a Labour peer stand up and say, well, if Lord Best supports it, I'll be supporting it. And uh, so by a bit of negotiation and a lot of negotiation with the department, uh, as a result of which I'm afraid to say, the bill I went in with to the department for my first talks was a lot fatter than the one I came out with. I managed to get something onto the statute book. It's really just a statutory register, but the government then quite quickly in the Housing and Planning Bill 2016, sections nine to 12 strengthened my act further so that not only are people given a legal obligation if they're, they're councils uh, to keep a, a register of people who want to get a service plot of land, but they are then required also to provide enough planning permissions, enough suitable planning permissions to meet the demand on that register. Now, there's a lot more to unpack there, but that's basically how it works. 
Yeah, well, so I, I have to say, I think it's brilliant what you've achieved, because although you say you had greater ambitions, we've got something on the statute book that says anybody can register for um, an interest in self-build housing in their district, and the council have got to meet that need um, within three years. And uh, we don't see that anywhere else in quite such stark terms. And, and as Sasha knows, that, that is evidence is then called at inquiries to show whether the council have met that obligation. So something wholly separate from affordable housing, you've created something where people register an interest and councils have got to deliver it. And if they don't, that's a material consideration against the proposal. So although you're very modest about it, that is, um, that is a real masterstroke to get that on, on the statute books. Richard, can I ask you, do you think the government's views reflect your views? Because you're very passionate about this. Uh, yes, and, in, and, and increasingly so. What's happened uh, recently has been extremely encouraging. In fact, the Right to Build Task Force, which I'm the task force ambassador, um, has made more progress in the last six weeks or so than in the previous three years since we were set up. The most interesting things that have happened recently are that on the 30th of October, which is Right to Build Day, um, the Secretary of State, Robert Jenrick, announced a review of the law on self-building customers. And importantly, he said, not simply we'll have a review of the law to see if this should stick around, but a review of the law to make it easier. You mentioned the council. Some of them have imposed, uh, by the way, there are quite a lot of councils, York, Carlisle, Bristol, uh, Bicester in, uh, in Oxfordshire, and various others that have done a great job. Glasgow City Council has just won an award this year for best council. Kings Lynn won the same award last year here in Norfolk. There are some good councils doing good things, but some of them are doing their level best to manipulate the numbers on the register downwards, sometimes insisting on quite draconian conditions, um, sometimes even saying you have to have a mortgage offer in place before they will let you on the register or charging a huge fee before you can be on it. We are, of course, keeping ministers completely briefed on all these uh, activities. I was going to call it antics, uh, but we'll perhaps come on to the business of how councils, if they saw it rightly, uh, could, would see that this register could strengthen their hand in the negotiations with landowners and developers. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. To have councils requiring people to pay £500 just to appear on the register is, cannot have been what was intended by the legislation at all. It's just another device by some councils. And I, I notice you emphasise that. There's good and bad examples everywhere. But they're trying to stop people from registering because it's yes. more a need that's unmet. That's, that's absolutely right. And I went along to the statutory instrument committee. I wasn't put on it as a member, but you're allowed as a member of parliament to go and speak in these things, except not vote if there are votes. And I told Gavin Barwell that to his face, that there was a risk that this would be misused by councils who don't want to embrace the opportunities that it provides. And that's exactly what's happened in some cases. Yeah. And the number of, number of constraints has grown, but the review of the Secretary of State is going to change that. The second thing, which is extremely important, is this. This is the Chancellor's spending review last week. Yeah. And this is, this is traction, this is money. Section, uh, paragraph 6.59, you'll see there, uh, I've highlighted two sections includes an, an, an additional hundred million pounds uh, for releasing public sector land, including service plots for self and custom builders, and 2.2 billion pounds, which is including money for delivering uh, help to build. Now, as you know, we've got help to buy, which has been going since 2013 to enable uh, people to uh, get on the ladder more easily. But of course, the problem with that, it's a subsidy for demand. It makes it easier for people to sell their products. Help to build, which was a manifesto commitment on page 31 of our manifesto at the election last year, um, is now being implemented by this provision. Help to build will be a subsidy for supply. And of course, whatever you tend to subsidize, you get more of. So I'm hoping this is going to be uh, transformational. This is the beginning of the moving of the tectonic plates. I was going to say, because these things are happening, the government is clearly very interested. It's been in the MPPS since 2012, but it's certainly been ratcheted up a bit. Uh, further in 2018 and 19. What are you hoping will happen from these various activities, policy support, and now support from the Chancellor? Well, the, the, the announcement of the spending review includes some one-year money, and I'm very much hoping that uh, Robert Jenrick will find a good use for that to get some exemplars going at scale, so that in a quite short space of time, we, we can show what can be achieved in the next 12 to 18 months, and that that will then inform the comprehensive spending review for the next three years, when we have a three-year package, hopefully, in a year's time. Uh, and that that could open up a whole range of opportunities. 
as sites come forward, what we really want to see happening is that as sites come forward, the idea of allocating part of the site, not in the horrible corner where nobody wants to be, but as an integral part of the marketing of the site, the opportunity for people to uh, do their own thing. The key point is that most people want to do their own thing. Nationwide Building Society has done uh, studies that show that 61% of people would like at some point in their lives to commission their own house. And among the crucial cohort between 18 and 34 years of age, that number is 80%. Four-fifths wow. of young people would like to commission their own house. Now, in a right-functioning, smoothly-flowing market, that would then happen. And what I'm, what I'm hoping is that as a result of these recent changes, we're going to see that uh, direction of travel speed up. Can I ask you, I mean, anybody who's watched Grand Designs will inevitably have spotted that a lot of these proposals are very risky um, and marginal, um, and they get criticised for the way they've handled the whole project and the finance. So um, is it, you know, might it be said, well, this is very exciting, but this is probably for foolish individuals and the foolhardy? Absolutely not. I mean, fundamentally not. Um, Kevin McLeod is a great guy. He's also a huge supporter of what the task force is doing. I've shared platforms with him, but he will be the first to tell you that Grand Designs is telling. He's making television programs. And for good television, you need pictures, human interest and conflict. So a hedge fund manager's wife converting a 4,000 square foot basement in Holland Park without drawings um, makes great telly when it goes wrong, <laughs> which it will. Uh, and there are other similar examples. But of course, most self-building custom house building isn't like that. There are professional custom packages out there who will help you challenge your budget, make sure that it's delivered on time and on budget. That's the experience of most people. And indeed, if you look at the finance market, there's a quite mature market for self-building custom house building mortgages. They have a lower default rate than uh, for conventional mortgages. And most of these schemes are delivered on budget and on time. There are plenty of ways to make that happen. Can I just ask you about where, where you think the sector will grow? And, and as it grows, who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers? Well, I think there's a chance for everyone to be a winner. Um, and I, I, I think we need a market in which uh, customers matter. I recently bought um, a new copy of um, Schumacher's famous book, uh, Small is Beautiful, in which the subtitle is uh, Economics as if People Matter. Uh, I, I want to create a world in which House building takes, takes place as if people matter, as if customers matter. We've all seen because of the pandemic and the lockdowns uh, that where you live is becoming increasingly important. Having a place for your kids to play safely where you can still get on with working at home is increasingly important. These things are going to only become more and more urgent. And as we, uh, the, we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that so many people are opposed to housing? I've yet to meet somebody whose daughter's just had a second baby who wants her grandchildren not to be well housed. And yet most housing is opposed by many people, including many of my conservative colleagues. We had a debate in parliament a few weeks ago and the theme was the new standard method, the new housing algorithm. And every speaker on our side, and there were many of them said, of course, I'm not actually against housing. I want more housing. I really do. I mean, we all do. Just in the name of God, not here, please. Yeah. And what we have to do, <laughs> we have completely to change the way we look at this so that uh, strategic land promoters see this as an opportunity, that local councils see it as an opportunity, which it is for them. And it's an opportunity to get better, greener, uh, more keenly priced dwellings that people actually want. It's an opportunity to design dwellings that uh, meet people's needs. Uh, Steve Jobs once said that people think design is about um, how something looks. It's not, he said. S design is about how something works. Uh, there's a great little book called The Aesthetics of Computing about the way in which uh, the best, uh, David Gellinter wrote it. He, he talked about the way in which the best technologists, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the best, uh, yes, the best technologists have always been obsessed uh, with beauty. And Steve Jobs, of course, was obsessed with beauty as well. It, and he, he pr produced well-beating products. But the real question is how things work. You mentioned my book earlier in the introduction, uh, this book, um, Conundrum. And there is a section in here where I examine the work of John Seddon, who is a very interesting management thinker. And he said, the problem is we spend too much time thinking about economies of scale and not enough time thinking about the economy of flow. In other words, getting rid of the blockages that stop things flowing evenly. And if we could just do that, if we could get to a world where supply rose to meet demand and we had more beautiful houses that were the ones people actually wanted, people would then not oppose 
uh, housing so much. It's perfectly possible to create a world in which um, we get more housing built that more people want, that is greener and that helps build community. We just have to do it. And I think that having service plots available for everybody uh, and it's extremely important to say that this is 10 year blind. It could be used for affordable housing, for housing cooperatives, for co-housing. I have seen it used for helping ex-offenders. When they come out of prison, they need a place to stay. That's the first thing they need. They then need a job or training that lead, leads to a job. But the first thing they need is a place to stay. And they need a place to stay that's not the drug dealer's sofa. Otherwise, they will go back into yeah, prison. Yeah. You have the same 120,000 people going round and round and round. To break that circle, you need to create some of them to stay. And guess what? When they have a say in, in building, a hand in building or creating the place that they're going to live, the recidivism rate drops through the floor. We all win as taxpayers. And that person then goes back into society and makes a useful contribution. I, th this could be used for the NHS. I have seen, I was texting with Matt Hancock today about NHS land, that we've got loads of it. We could be using... Uh, NHS land to incentivize nurses who often leave and come back as agency nurses. We could have uh, calibrated loyalty packages where we say, if you stay with the NHS as a nurse uh, on the books, not as an agency nurse, then uh, after a number of years, we will give you the opportunity to buy the house that we're renting to you that you've helped design the creation of uh, uh, as a discount, depending on how much loyalty you've given. You could do the same for social workers. You could do the same for teachers in difficult to fill subjects or in difficult, diff different, different, difficult to fill parts of the country. Yeah, Richard, you're a, you're an ideas factory. It just uh, the ideas just keep flowing, and you're right. The house building industry does have a perception problem in terms of people opposing new development, and maybe if people were more welcoming of it, um, we would have less of a perception problem there. I'm going to uh, throw it open to the others now, and uh, Charlie, you've got a question. Thanks, uh, uh, Richard. First, I just congratulate you on on all your work in promoting self and custom building. I've promoted a number of such schemes as far back as 2014. It, it always struck me that they're they're more affordable um, if done right because you cut out much or all of the middleman and there's some evidence on that and also they tend to be of higher quality design done right. Mm -hmm. uh, what might be to a bean counter for a developer that produces fifteen thousand homes a year, um, the difference between plastic window frames and chrome window frames, a couple hundred quid, uh, would be a huge amount. But if you're building it for yourself or having it built for yourself, the two hundred quid will be often worthwhile. So um, it's a great idea and, and well done. Um, my experience, though, is that a lot of local authorities, not all, but a lot of local authorities seek to implement their duties to plan positively for self and custom build, both under legis your legislation and under the MPPF, by requiring a percentage, usually 5%, of large-scale housing allocations to be self or custom built, a bit like the affordable housing percentage of a tariff, 5% of the thousand be self or custom build. And then having made those 5% um, those um, of allocation tariffs, if you like, in their local plans, when someone comes along to promote a standalone self-build only scheme, which almost by necessity would tend to be on a greenfield site in the countryside, almost by necessity, um, the local authority will refuse them saying, well, we've planned for, for self-custom build through this 5% um, uh, requirement. Uh, we don't need this scheme uh, and, and you know, the tilted balance doesn't apply because the, the, there are relevant policies, etc., uh, and they get refused. So in light of that, really, my question is, is that consistent with your vision for self and custom build or, or should the planning system be, be more supportive of standalone custom self-build schemes rather than relegating such schemes to the, the corner of a conventional housing estate? I think relegating is a very good word to use here. And they do see it, um, that those minority of councils that are not seizing this, as a pesky irritant to be dealt with. Um, you mentioned targets and a percentage. Um, there are some councils that have done that and to, to some ex extent successfully. But the Dutch tried it. They had a target of uh, 33% and they found that the problem was not um, the, the, target, the, the percentage didn't really help. What, what hindered things was the, the blockages in the system. And I mentioned John Seddon, whom I wrote back in, in my book Conundrum earlier. His uh, thesis was that targets, whether in policing or the NHS or in in um, things like uh, schools, we're actually making things worse. And in my vision of a right, rightly designed world, the number of people who did custom and self-build, uh, who actually managed to do it, would be intimately related to the number of people who wanted to. And what Seddon says is, if instead of concentrating on targets, you concentrate on the economy of flow, you will achieve better results than any target you might have dared to set. And that's really what we need to get to. 
Very thank good. You so thank, thank you, Charlie. Mary, your question. Thank you very much, Chris. Do you think that the introduction of design codes will help to facilitate more custom self-build? Um, or is adherence to de a design code, do you think, an enigma to the self-build enthusiast who wants to do their own thing? And I just want to say a little word about this uh, large strategic sites, 5%, because if you're the developer and you are creating a product, one of the things you worry about when self-build comes along is that that might undermine your own product and you want your product to, to have, a, have, a, have a lovely setting. And I, I feel that's one of the reasons why there's a degree of uh, suspicion, uh, concern, uncertainty around self-build, which turns uh, volume house builders and, and others off. So sorry, back to my question. Is a design code going to facilitate or not? I think if it's used right, a design code will help, not least because it'll make it less scary uh, for the people who are scared. I mean, it's important to say that some of the most exciting things that I've seen, uh, both in the Netherlands and here, have been where everyone did their own thing. And making a, a setting beautiful is about the context, it's about the roads, it's about the planting. Having a variety of different houses isn't a problem at all. Just go to Pioneer Square in Graven Hill and you can see that. Um, it, of course, there are people who like uh, consistency and regularity and the, the, the word in keeping. If you go to Blandford Forum, you will see a beautiful street scene. It was master planned after an enormous fire in the 1760s where the entire town was destroyed. And one controlling mind, if you like, uh, a Leon Creer of his day, um, uh, was involved in, in, in reproducing uh, what was there. It certainly wasn't in keeping with what was there before, which were low timber frame cottages. And instead now you have a beautiful Georgian street scene with a lot of three-story houses, although they they're very varied. It seems to me the way to do this is to subzone so that you can have in those areas where people want consistency uh, and have a small c conservative approach, they can get that whether they want conventional, or whether they want Georgian, or whatever they want, but always done to the highest standard of thermal performance and with the highest quality materials. Um, and if people want something more adventurous, then they can have that. And uh, you, you can simply say to people, uh, in this zone over here, but not over here, you're allowed to do exactly what you want, and it can look however you want it to want. Uh, but of course, you have to accept as the concomitant of that, that other people who are looking at your house, you have to look at their house, and it may be something completely different from what you would have done. But after all, it's the person who's going to live in the house that should have the most say over what it looks like. And if you're scared of all that, then you go over to a different zone where it's all Georgian or where it's all thatched. I've seen brand new thatched houses in the Netherlands that look absolutely fantastic. This can all be dealt with. You know, it's, 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 it's complex. There are lots of moving parts, but it's not that complex. We got a man to the moon 51 years ago. This is a lot simpler. Yes, that's very true. Uh, Paul, your question. Uh, Richard, can I say, um, and, and I say as, as somebody who's brought up uh, as a non-conservative, it's an inspiration to listen to you speaking. So it's a joy to have you on the show and say these things. Uh, and also because uh, I spent my, uh, my O-levels revising living in a flat above a fish shop in Scarborough while my dad built his own house. And he did it. It took a year, but he did it in order to make money ultimately and create a family home. But we loved it because every room was cared for. Every room was designed by my dad. We knew the dining room was designed to be big enough, etc. Wonderful. Um, my question is is slightly off beam, really, which is joined up thinking. Whenever I encounter self build, it tends to be in the context of sill going wrong of the, the very rigorous approach that's taken to SIL exemption certificates where there's no discretion to, to waive issues. Uh, and it's really just a, a plea about, yes, of course, we want to facilitate it, but if you want to facilitate this sort of thing, it has to be facilitation in the context of helping people to regulate. And I note from one of our uh, uh, questions that Duncan Hayes has, has drawn attention to the right to build uh, um, a commission identifying their own planning guidance. So it's, how, how helpful can we, can we be to try and bring that joined up thinking to avoid a huge pitfall like so, where you end up paying tens of thousands of pounds if you don't get the right certificate in? in yeah. yeah, well, um, oh, by the way, I ought to say, uh, given that you were uh, worried about not having had a classical education, my point about buying all these books was that I didn't have one either. <laughs> my, my, Latin, my Latin master um, uh, did his best, but, but we were working with, in my case, very poor material. Um, and... Uh, uh, no, you make a good point about it, Sil. I mean, in, in fact, the way we tax land value capture, the way we tax the uplift, 
um, is, is very, very clunky. And we, we should be able to find a better way, a much better way. I mean, anyone might think that land value capture is a new subject and all party groups just been formed on it. Actually, Ebenezer Howard was writing about it in the 1890s. And we've got to get a, a more holistic way of looking at this. We have systemic problems. We have systemic failure, so we need a systemic solution. This white paper, I know people have criticized the algorithm, but it's fundamentally trying to get down to the brass tacks of what's wrong. An inefficient, opaque process and poor outcomes. We can do better. We, we, we're going to have to live with the consequences of what we do for generations, so we might as well do our very best, our level best, using this to get it right. And from imagine if instead of councillors hearing the word Gladman and, and being terrified, as certainly I've experienced councillors who are, they saw an opportunity because... Gladman itself or other strategic land promoters was seizing this opportunity, like a big project in Wakefield has just done, where 100 of the 400 acres are going to be for serviced plots. Now, the answer to the previous point, of course, is if it turns out that there's more demand and it's in a good place than you can satisfy with only 100 acres, you can flex and finesse the scheme. You can actually achieve more and a better rate of return. Uh, and move on more quickly by supplying service plots and then letting other people do their own thing than by building out the entire rate. You can increase the absorption rate, in other words, quite rapidly uh, uh, by doing this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, Richard, what a complete breath of fresh air. That's what everybody is uh, saying. Now, we're a little bit short of time. So Sasha, who is a complete gentleman, um, uh, even without a classical education, uh, is um, is going to forfeit his question so we can move on. We need to thank you very much. And to say, uh, you mentioned Gladman there. They have recently done a scheme with 10% uh, um, self-build on it. Uh, so people are listening. And um, I personally think that actually council should identify specific sites rather than necessarily just add 5 or 10%. Mm -hmm. I agree. Sites for this type of product. Then you won't get the... Uh, animosity from the house builders uh, who who have a reason to want to have finished products. To be fair, mm -hmm. I had a look at Graven Hill yesterday. Graven Hill yesterday, you know, it's a bit of a building site, and it will be for years. That won't appeal okay. to everybody. But in all that you say, I think just a really, really interesting um, venture and really, really interesting proposals, Richard. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for having me. I think, dare I say, I'm not to flatter you, in an area where um, politicians aren't viewed in quite the same esteem by the public as perhaps they have been in the past, I think your appearance on this show will be a breath of fresh air to a lot of people. As yeah. well, well my, my, my book about why politicians aren't as bad as you think uh, hasn't come out yet, but when I write it, it will. Well, okay. send us a copy in the post. Yes. <laughs> um, now, uh, Sasha, having forgotten his question, you are at least going to nominate the champion of the week. So I am. I am. But before I do, I just want to refer to Paul's 16-year-old experience. I did design O-Level and it came to a terrible end when I dropped that design file under a train at Petersfield Station. So I was deprived of career as an architect because my... Oh. Watching your whole O level project be crushed by a train. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Law's game was architecture's loss. Um, can I just make a, I want Champ of the Week, I want to talk about all five of us have been involved in inquiries and EIPs this week. And my Champ of the Week is those who are the unspoken or unknown champions who are the administrators at PINS who have done a quite superb job. Yes. Everyone I've come across who opens up the uh, virtual inquiry deals with the inspector's concerns, stays calm when people fall off, etc. I mean, my experience, and I'm sure I speak for all of us, has been that they've been truly amazing. And it's funny, prior to COVID, we all knew their names. They were highly familiar. But since COVID, we've become we've seen them. We've appreciated what they do. And thank you for keeping the system going here. Hey, hey. Brilliant. Sasha, um, very, very well, well said. Um, Paul, nudge of the week. Well, uh, it, Sasha's given me the nudge, so I'm happy to hand it back, Sasha, uh, if you want it. Uh, right. uh, I, I was actually going to nudge uh, a, a different thing. I was going to suggest that we all needed nudging to respond to the government's consultation on changing Class E. Uh, to allow the inclusion of C3 because that potentially has significant ramifications. So I was going to nudge the audience, but uh, uh, Sasha's uh, delivered to me some information about Hackney Council, uh, who have been the subject of a cyber attack uh, in October and have invited uh, everybody who had a planning application submitted prior to the 1st of October and not determined to withdraw the applications 
because all of the information's gone. The consultation responses have gone. The application detail has gone. And it finishes off with what, what is heartbreaking to indicate that um, unless you do withdraw your application, Hackney can't grant the permission because fundamentally they will have ignored material considerations that have been lost to the ether. My note of the week is not Hackney Council because, because plainly they're on the receiving edge. My note of the week is the idiots that think that this is a good idea. What sort of world do we live in where there are people with that sort of ability to do these things and yet have such serious ramifications? So I'm nudging a non-planner, the idiots and the keyboard warriors that do this nonsense. Quite yeah. right. Quite right. You, Paul. Um, well, thank you, everybody, um, for joining us. Particular thanks, of course, to Richard, as we said, for coming on the show. And um, hopefully we'll get other MPs of all, um, uh, all affiliations on in future. Charlie, I think we must have Richard back in time to give us an audit of where he's got to in a couple of years. That would be delightful. Yes. Okay. Planning, planning minister, possibly, but dare I say. <laughs> I'll ask, I was on a call with Chris earlier today. I'll ask him or Robert if they want to come on. Well, please oh, please do. Um, I, I think that's we haven't been trying, but um, yes, it would be, be wonderful to have them on and, and we'd be fascinated, I'm sure, with our viewers. Um, we're back next week for our final um, uh, show of, uh, of this year. Uh, we are going to be back in January. We'll let you know more about that next week. Um, our Christmas special on Thursday, the 17th of December. We're really looking forward to seeing you then. As always, please do in be in touch with any suggestions you may have. I shall be free of quarantine, uh, which will be uh, rather nice. Um, and look forward to seeing you all then in the meantime have a lovely um friday and weekend um thanks again richard see you goodbye thank you well that was the show we hope you enjoyed it if so uh, please do consider making a charity donation and if you want to watch us as well as listen the show is broadcast live at 5 p.m on a thursday and it's also available afterwards to view on our youtube channel thanks very much to our producer and it guru rob newbury of blue bear it Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.